Well, we're continuing in our worship service in the Gospel of Mark. We're coming closer and closer to the cross. Uh, I said this at the outset of our study in Mark, that Mark is an eager, uh, uh, an eager gospel writer. He, he moves fast, and he uses all sorts of ways to do that. He, he uses short, pithy lines. He uses quick transitions. Uh, of the three, of, compared to the three other gospels, he is relatively short and sweet. Um, yet, as we approach the cross, Mark uh, slows down. And this is not, this is not atypical uh, in Scripture. In fact, if we go to the Old Testament, this is fairly common. The Old Testament writers would often, when they came to the climax or the most important section of the narrative, they would slow down and show all sorts of detail. And that's kind of what Mark does here. Uh, he takes that Hebraic way of, uh, of writing and he, he zooms up to the cross and then he extends the time out for us so that we can meditate and think about the cross. And so here, Mark lingers in the garden as he is, as Jesus is betrayed. And he gives us some detail that's not expressed in the other accounts. And we'll look at some of that detail. And the other accounts give details that Mark doesn't give. So we'll, we'll look at those things. Um, but I want us to be a little bit like Mark. We're taking a smaller section. I want us to linger here on the betrayal of Jesus. So we're going to take some time looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 42 to 52. Uh, you can follow along with me in your Bibles or in your bulletins. Mark 14, 42 to 52. This is the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Hear God's word. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him and nothing but a linen, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I ask for your help. Uh, help me as your servant be faithful in ministering the gospel. And help us as hearers of your word by your Spirit, impress the word in, in, upon our hearts that we might worship you and love you more and see more of your grace and obey you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is uh, hard for us to imagine a life without friendship. And I realize that friendship is a difficult thing. When I say that, we... We struggle with friendship. It's part of our, our challenge in this life. We struggle with it. Uh, it's risky business, if you will. 
It involves putting our heart out there, and there is a very real likelihood that we'll be hurt at some point in that friendship. And and when I say friendship, I'm talking about all sorts of friendships, friendships within families, friendships between acquaintances at work, friendships that are more intimate, like a marriage. It's hard. And after a few wounds in our childhood, we can start to become a little jaded, right? A little guarded towards uh, making new friends. Sometimes we carry that jadedness into our adulthood, and we are very guarded, and we, we struggle to reach out and make friends because we know that there's pain and heartache in it, that they often, friendships, that is, don't often turn out as we hope. Sometimes it's just a slow fade, right? That's sometimes how friendships end. There's changing values. There are changing interests. Sometimes it's a little harsher than that. Sometimes it's a division, right? It is uh, some conflict or dispute that causes a rift that can happen in friendships. We've experienced that. But the worst kind of friendship, the very worst of all, is the kind of friendship that ends in betrayal. It can be a minor betrayal. It can be a major betrayal. But no matter the sort, it hurts because on the wall, on the face of it, the things, the relationship seemed healthy. It seemed good. It seemed like a loving friendship. And then all of a sudden, it turns suddenly on us. And we realize, wait a minute, this person wasn't my friend. They betrayed me. And the effect isn't only the loss of that friendship, but often it leads to the sowing of seeds of doubt into our heart about all friendship, right? You start to distrust friendships because once trust is broken down in any relationship, all of a sudden you start to wonder, what about this friend? Are they going to betray me? And what about this friend? It's devastating, isn't it? The psalmist uh, expresses this pain in Psalm 41, where the psalmist is he's on his deathbed almost. He's very ill. He's sick to the point of almost dying, and he cries out to God for help. And his enemies are surrounding him, and they're looking and waiting, right? It's like, it's like the, uh, the jackals that kind of surround a dying corpse or something. They're just kind of waiting uh, for their moment. And that's how, how the psalmist describes the enemies that surround him. But hear the words of the psalmist, because it's not just his enemies. He says this, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He won't rise again from where he lies. Even my closest friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. When we read these words, we can't read them without thinking about the Lord Jesus in this very moment here in the Gospel of Mark or in the other Gospel accounts. Judas, his friend, comes and kisses him. He calls him rabbi, and he betrays him. Jesus had faced all sorts of things, hadn't he? He had faced 
hunger and thirst in the wilderness. He had faced the temptation of Satan there. He faced rejection and ignorance. He had faced selfishness and all sorts of unbelief in his ministry. But now he faced the betrayal of a friend, one with whom he ate bread, who has now lifted his heel against him. And as we consider this betrayal this afternoon, I want us to think about Judas and the disciples and how fickle their friendship is. I want to focus on that for a bit. And then afterward, um, I want us to consider our own fickleness as friends in that. But then at the end, I want us to think about the friendship of Jesus. I want us to wonder at his friendship, at his faithfulness. Brings to mind uh, that hymn that begins, What a friend we have in Jesus. You see, despite our fickleness, he is faithful to the end. That's what I want us to see this morning. But first, we have to look at the fickleness of friendship. In literature, in TV, in movies, we have a certain fascination with betrayal. I think because it's so startling, right? Um, but we have a, a certain fa- fascination with it. In fact, there's a whole TV show based on betrayal. If you have ever watched the show Survivor, you know what I'm talking about, right? The, the whole show is about betrayal. Of course, they aren't real friendships. It's all a game. But the most famous betrayal, apart from Judas here in our text, was immortalized by Shakespeare in his play, The Tragedy of Julius Caesar, where, upon being stabbed in his back, Caesar utters his last words. Anybody? You got it. Et tu, Brute. You as well, Brutus? You, my friend, Brutus? Brutus wasn't alone in his uh, conspiracy and betrayal. His brother-in-law and Senator Cassius instigated the plot to assassinate Julius Caesar. And Dante, in his famous work, The Inferno, takes Cassius and Brutus. And if you know anything about the Dante's Inferno, it's about these various circles of hell, right? There's, there's kind of like the easy part of hell and the hard part of hell. And there's lots of different layers. But at the very furthest, deepest, darkest circle of hell, he places Cassius and Brutus. And the others in there with him, Judas and Satan. Why? Because betrayal is one of those things that universally people regard as wicked. Universally. And it's the worst kind of wickedness. Here in our text, Judas leads a band of men sent from the chief priest to arrest Jesus and bring him in before the high priest with with the ultimate aim of putting him to death. Now, it's uncertain whether Judas realized the full extent of this. I, I, I think, obviously, after this, he has some sort of regret or remorse uh, remember, he returns the money bag and he throws it at the, at the temple floor and he goes and he takes his own life. I, I, you, you, scholars sometimes wonder, did, did he realize the full extent of what he was doing when he betrayed Jesus? I don't know. I'm not sure. But it's interesting to compound his betrayal as he was approaching 
Jesus. He said, I'm going to give you a signal. He told the men with the clubs and the, the, the swords, he says, I'm going to give you a signal. I'm going to kiss Jesus and call him rabbi, and then you'll know that's Jesus. And in verse 44, he says it this way, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. The one I kiss. Kiss is an intimate thing. According to scholars, it was a token of homage to a rabbi. This would have been the common way in which his disciples would have greeted him. If they were coming to him, they would have kissed him and said, Rabbi, it was a, it was an, a, a greeting that both showed the intimacy, but also the honor and homage that was due to Jesus as their rabbi, as their teacher. It expressed that respect and the humility that the student comes to him with. Here was Judas, one of the twelve. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. Presumably, he spread the gospel with Jesus. He ministered the poor to the poor with Jesus. He followed him wherever he went. We have no indication whatsoever that the other disciples had any clue until this moment that Judas was the betrayer. In other words, Judas was a friend, close companion. Among the different gospel writers, we get different details, but each one of them sort of round out the extent of, Jesus, of Judas's betrayal. Mark highlights his kissing Jesus and calling him rabbi. Luke highlights that Judas is betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. In other words, he's highlighting that terrible rebellion of Judas against the Messiah, the Son of God. John seems simply to note that Judas was with the soldiers. He's highlighting the betrayal through whom Judas associates himself with. But it is Matthew the gospel writer Matthew, who highlights the friendship of Judas to Jesus. In the Matthew account, when Judas approaches uh, Jesus and says, Greetings, Rabbi, and kisses him, Jesus re responds to Judas and says, Friend. What an interesting moment. Jesus is fully aware of what Judas is doing. In fact, earlier in the day, earlier in the evening, he had said, Judas, go, do what you're about to do. He had said, one of you is going to betray me. He knew exactly what Judas was about. And as Judas approached him to betray him, to kiss him, to call him rabbi, Judas says, I mean, Jesus says to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Judas in that moment? There's a bit more irony and bite to Jesus' words here. Judas was a man who was a pretender, right? He wasn't really a friend. He was a hypocrite. Interestingly, the word used for friend there in the Gospel of Matthew was a word that was used kind of generically about friend, right? It wasn't a warm, intimate friend word. It was more of like friend or companion or compatriot or um, comrade, or just kind of a general word for friend. And Matthew uses that word for friend a couple times in the Gospel of Matthew, but one place in particular he uses it that I think is helpful and instructive to us. He uses it in the parable of the wedding feast of the king. Guests come to the wedding feast, and the king is 
invited all these people, and they all are dressed in their wedding garments. And in the parable, there's a single man who isn't wearing his wedding garments. I don't know if you remember this parable, but in that, the king asks the man, friend, he says, friend, right? You're here at my party. You're here at my wedding feast. Why are you not adorned as you ought to be? How did you get here without a wedding garment? That's what the king says. It says that the man was speechless and the king cast him into the outer darkness. And the king says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting. You see, Jesus here in the gospel was picturing the kind of hypocrisy and pretend friendship to God that we see in Judas. This is Judas the pretender, the betrayer, the hypocrite. One we can easily loathe, like Dante. We cast him into the outer, deepest reaches of hell itself because we can't imagine the kind of betrayal that Judas has. But I want us to stop and do a little bit of soul searching. How is it possible for Judas to betray Jesus? I think it's really way too easy for us to just to kind of say, well, he's one of the worst, you know, like it's kind of like saying somebody's Hitler, right? If you say they're Hitler, they're, they're kind of put outside the boundary of humanity almost, right? We can do that with Judas. We can say, oh, they're, they're, it's just another Hitler. Like we, we don't identify with them at all. There's no, there's no way I can understand somebody like that. They're just too wicked, too, too far gone. I think that's, it's too easy to do that. So I want us to think about why was it possible for Judas to betray Jesus? And the thing is, it doesn't begin with betrayal, does it? It begins much further back in the heart. For Judas, it begins with lesser sins, lesser desires. It begins for him, for Judas, with money, right? We saw this earlier in the gospel. He was the keeper of the purse, uh, one of the gospel writers even calls him a thief. He would used to skim off the top. His issue was greed. That was his, his big heart issue. And ultimately, it leads to him betraying the Lord Jesus. And as I was thinking about this particular sin, I thought how pertinent it is today. If you've been following the news, if you follow the stock market and all of its crazy machinations, what we see in full-blown display is the greed of our nation. Just right there in front of us, right? Here you have hedge fund managers who have all the wealth in the world, and they are hedging bets against companies in order to line their pockets. They're pressing down those companies' values so that they can make a profit, right? That's what, I'm not probably saying it as carefully as somebody who understands it better than I do, but that was basically what hedge fund managers do. Well, to be a hedge fund manager, you have to have an, an enormous amount of wealth, and you have to have wealth to invest in that kind of thing. So it was kind of the, the stock market elites, right? Well, step in the rabble, the Reddit people, the, the basic, what we call retail investors who 
like you and me, just kind of occasionally invest in the market. And those folks, they said, you know what? We're going to band together and we're going to drive up the price of this one stock and we're going to stick it to the man. We're going to stick it to those greedy hedge fund managers, right? That's what they did. They drove up the value of the stock to astronomical heights, way beyond what the, the, the actual value of the company. And they kept saying over and over again in the news, you can read it, you can go on to Reddit, you can read it. It's all about sticking it to the man. We don't care about the money. Don't buy that for a minute. Because what's going to happen? The people who, who sort of were driving that, 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 that force, you know, were calling people in to invest in the stock and you know, if you're one of those later investors, you're investing it at a, you're, you're putting a lot of money in at a high price. Well, that stock is going up and up and up, and they're saying it's going to hit the moon. What those men are going to do is they're going to pull the trigger at some point. They're going to pull their parachute, and they're going to jump. And who's left holding the bag? All those people that came in at the end. So this is Greed. Greed of that sort of low-level investor greed at the top of those hedge fund managers. But don't, get, don't, don't misread me. For all those people who started to read the news and were like, oh, I'm going to get in on GameStop. The ones who are going to be left holding the bag is greed. Right? It's greed. Our greed exposed. I just use that as an example of where we're all prone to it. Right? Paul warns Timothy that the root of all kinds of evil is the love of money. Not only does it lead us to take advantage of people, betraying friendships, even betraying family members, but it can cause us to use the name of God to fill our own pockets. As a minister of the gospel, this is a particular temptation of my vocation. You don't have to go very far again onto the TV to see Ministers claiming to preach the gospel fleece their congregations for money. Of course, money is not the only idol that can cause us to betray others and to betray our Lord. The truth is that the root of our sin is betrayal. If we go back to the garden, to Adam and Eve in the garden, what they desired was knowledge, right? They wanted to be like God, to know the good and evil. They wanted what was not theirs, and they wanted to take it. And Satan tempted them to do that. And what did they do? They betrayed their God who had placed them in the garden and given them everything that they wanted. It wasn't enough. So they took the fruit that was forbidden to them, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That's betrayal. They weren't satisfied. And isn't that for all of us? When we are discontent with the Lord's provision, we betray him, and we take what is not ours, greed and stealing, lust and adultery, hate and murder, rebellion against authority, lying and bearing false witness, all of these sins laid out for us Clearly, in the Ten Commandments, all of them show that discontentment with God and his provision for us. Yes, Judas's betrayal is bald-faced, right? It is shameless. It is sort of the grossest expression of that sin. But each of us, each of us in our own way, as we chase the idols of our hearts, 
we betray our first love. In the book of Revelation, letters were sent out to the the churches, and one of those churches was Ephesus. Ephesus was commended for all sorts of good things that it did, but there's a big but in the middle of it. It says, but you have forsaken your first love. And there's a huge warning to that church in Ephesus that the lampstand, the light of the gospel, would be removed from them if they didn't put Christ as their first love. Isn't it an easy thing for us to do when we're dissatisfied with life? To replace God with those idols of the heart? And make no mistake, it's a form of betrayal. Peter and the disciples here in the text, they're not necessarily bald-faced betrayers like Judas, but they are sort of lesser betrayers, aren't they, in some ways? The disciple next to Jesus isn't named here in the Gospel of Mark. He is named in the Gospel of Luke. And he takes a sword from his side. He's not going to betray Jesus. He's going to stand and fight. And he takes that sword and he cuts the ear off of a servant of the high priest. I always think it's kind of funny. You know, it doesn't say he went to battle with those who had swords. It looks like he took the weakest one and, you know, I'm going to attack that guy. But, but either way, he was ready to fight. He cuts off the servant's ear. We learn from the Gospel of John, um, that, I'm sorry, we learned from the Gospel of John that it's Peter, and from Luke is the one where we learn that he healed, he healed, that Jesus healed the ear. There is a slight bit of boldness on the part of Peter, a willingness to fight for him. But doesn't that courage dissipate quickly? It fades. And it fades because I think Jesus was unwilling to fight, and this bothered Peter. This was not what Peter wanted from Jesus. This was not who he saw Jesus as. He wanted Jesus to be a fighter. He wanted Jesus, the Messiah, to step up and take the throne away from the authorities to establish the kingdom by power and might. I think Peter would have gladly died a valiant soldier's death alongside the Messiah. But when Jesus willingly was arrested, that was too much for Peter. This was not his idea of dying with Jesus. It wasn't willingly laying down arms and saying, okay, arrest me, I'm willing to die. I'm willing to lay down my life. If he was going to die, he was going to go out in a blaze of glory. But this isn't the way of Jesus. So he and the other disciples ran off, and in that lesser way, they betrayed him. Of course, it's not to that great extent, right? It's not to the extent of Judas. It wasn't so brazen or cold and calculating. But those disciples betrayed Jesus. The suffering and humility that was entailed in Jesus' arrest was too much for them. It was too great. And I think this is often the way of it for us. Our betrayal is not so much a calculated rebellion. Rather, it's an unwillingness to lay down our lives. You see, we have other idols, idols of comfort and happiness, of good life. Jesus said earlier in Mark, to gain life, you must lose your life. And it's that costliness of discipleship, 
in which we must say that Christ is worth more to me than all my earthly desires. That is too much. Right? It's too much. Lord, what you're asking from me is too much. I can't. So I'm going to take what I want. What is it for you? What love of yours is greater than Christ? That when threatened, you willingly abandon Jesus. As I look at my own heart, I fear that I have too many. Too many. Well, there's one more curious detail in which we see betrayal, and it's the oddest one of them all, and only the Gospel of Mark writes it. It's this young man, wrapped in a linen cloth. He's the only one that the the, the soldiers grab, too. Isn't that kind of funny? But they grab him, and of course, he just lets go of the cloth, and he escapes, but he's naked. Uh, It's a funny detail, Mark. First of all, why, why are we relaying that detail? Secondly, who is this person? Um, well, let me suggest a few things to you. It says that the man was a young man. So that's the first thing that we notice. It says that the young man had just a linen cloth around him. That's the second thing. Um, and then thirdly, he runs away naked. And I want to look at each of those three things. So he was a young man. That, lang- that word for young man uh, indicates, it, it is used in in the Greek, to describe a man in his prime or a young man in his prime, somewhere between the ages of 15 and 25, sort of man at the full strength of his youth, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I've been pretending to play basketball recently, <laughs> and I realize I'm not young. <laughs> and sometimes I'll be playing kids, young men, who are 20 years younger than me, and I realize quickly <sighs> how... As, I'm just not in my prime anymore. I got to come to terms. I got to come to grips with it. Studying. I haven't yet. But here was a man, he was in his youth. If there was ever going to be one who might stand up and fight for Jesus, here he was. That's the first thing that I noticed. Second thing is he was a man that had wealth. He had a linen cloth. Most, most average Joes would have wool. They would use wool. But here he had a linen cloth. Now, why, why does that matter? Well, commentators and the ancient writers presume that this is actually Mark himself, John Mark. Mark here, that is the writer of this gospel. And it's one of the reasons that it's only in the gospel of Mark. And if he's the only one left, right, at the very end, he's the only one that would have even known that he ran away naked. So... That's one of the reasons they think it's the the writer, John Mark. The other reason is they presume that the house that they were staying in belonged to Mark's family, that the one that they just had the meal in, the one they had just come from, right? So imagine this. You have Jesus and the 12 disciples, and they're eating in the upper room, and Mark and his family are elsewhere in the household in awe, right? They're in wonder. Here is the Messiah staying with us and eating the Passover with us. And Mark, a young man who's eager to know this Jesus, kind of, kind of, kind of sits on the edge. Now, it's likely that why did he only have a, a cloth around him? Why, why was he not dressed more fully? Um, some suggest that he was kind of ready for bed. But then the disciples, of course, are going to head out, and this is too much excitement for him. So he wants to go, but he just 
puts a cloth around him and heads out as not really thinking about those details and runs out. So this is some conjecture, right? We don't know all the details, but it seems that this is possibly the writer of this gospel. And he goes out as a fairly wealthy person with a linen cloth around him, and he's there watching it all unfold. And as a young man who has strength, he's the last. But then they grab him. And in that moment, fear strikes his heart, and he runs. And he runs away naked. Why is that significant? It's kind of like the crown here in this whole description. Throughout Scripture, nakedness is akin to shame. Here he was, in his youth, in his strength, abandoning, disavowing, running from, betraying the Lord Jesus to his shame, to his own shame. So it is with all of us, isn't it? We are not faithful friends to Jesus. We struggle even to be faithful friends to our closest loved ones. But here's the good news, is that we have a faithful friend. In Jesus. There's always an undercurrent through the gospel of Mark. And that undercurrent is that God is in control. That God is sovereign. That he's working all these things out. That he's working salvation for his people. It's an undercurrent that we've seen throughout the gospel of Mark. First, here in this text, we see how the plot and wickedness of the religious leaders is exposed, right? They come to arrest Jesus, and Jesus asks them a question. He says to them, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He's almost laughing at this point, right? Jesus is like, "What? why are you doing this? I've been with you day after day. I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. Like, what? why now, why in the dark, why with clubs and swords do you come to arrest me? He's exposing them. You see, if they have been justified in arresting Jesus, if Jesus were in fact a terrible rabble-rouser, a, 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 a robber, somebody who was deceiving the people, if he was as wicked as they said he was, then they would not have worried about the crowds. They would have gone and arrested him as soon as he showed up in Jerusalem. And as soon as he started to preach in the temple, they would have come and they would have arrested him no matter what the crowds did, and they would have been justified. Even if the crowds had rioted, they would have truth and justice on their side. But the fact that they came at night, that they came armed and ready to fight, was a symbol of their own guilt. We aren't given details as to why they came armed, but some commentators think that it was part of the lie and narrative that this Jesus was a dangerous instigator, that he was a danger to people. The very fact that Judas needed to identify Jesus likely means that those that were with him, those armed bodyguards, if you will, that came with clubs and swords, it's likely that they didn't know Jesus by seeing him, like they hadn't sat under his ministry. They had no idea of who he was. All they knew is what the, the religious leaders had told them, that here is somebody who is dangerous. They were being fed lies. And Jesus exposes this. He says, really? You need clubs and swords? 
Have I not been with you this whole time? You could have seized me, but you didn't. And Jesus in the subtext is saying, it's because you know I'm not guilty. But come on, get on with it. Scripture must be fulfilled. This is my time. I'm going to be arrested. Come, do it. In one of the other Gospels, we read this quote from Isaiah 53 in the Gospel of Luke. In this moment, Jesus was being numbered among the transgressors. From Isaiah 53, 12. Of course, Isaiah 53 is that beautiful passage of Scripture where it says he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. But it also says that he was numbered among the transgressors. All of it, all of this, the betrayal, the armed guards, the abandonment, everything that has happened in this moment that showed the faithlessness of Jesus' friends and the faithlessness of the Jewish leaders, all of it was according to the sovereign plan of God. And this is, the, this is for me, the most wondrous thing about this sovereign plan of God. This is uh, this, the wonder of the gospel here. I want, us to, I want us to hear this. There's wonder in this moment. And it's a wonder of friendship. It's a friendship that defies all sensibilities. First, for us, think about this. We in our earthly friendships, we have lines that we draw. If we have friends that betray us, friends that abandon us, friends that are hostile to us, do we remain their friends? I don't. I mean, maybe, maybe if... (laughs) But it, but it takes a lot of healing, right? It takes a lot of work, a lot of counseling, a lot of, a, a lot of dealing with the issues of betrayal and abandonment and, and hostility. But in the wonder of the love of Christ, in his faithfulness as a friend, not only does he endure betrayal and denial and abandonment, he counts on it. He expects it. He knows us. He knows how deep our unfaithfulness is. How much we're willing to to betray him. He knows all of it. And he takes it and he, as only the God of heaven can do, uses it to show his steadfast love and mercy to us. This is the wonder of the gospel, that, that despite our unfaithfulness and our betrayal and our sin, he remains a faithful friend, and he loves us. He knows full well that Peter would run and deny him three times. He knows that these men will bring him to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin will accuse him, and they will ultimately crucify him. This is the wonder of the love of Christ and his friendship. But here's the even greater wonder of it all. Not only, not only does he willingly use our betrayal for his uh, work of redeeming us and calling us friend. That's, that's an amazing thing. But in that betrayal is not only the fact that he gets turned over to 
uh, these wicked men to be put to death. But in his very death, he takes upon him the curse that is deserved for our betrayal. That is a thought that defies my sensibility of what it means to be a friend. I mentioned a hymn at the beginning that says, What a friend we have in Jesus. I think that's a right declaration. What a friend we have in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're hearing the gospel for the first time, this is a wondrous truth that in Christ, he knows you're a sinner. He knows you're broken. He knows that you're not a faithful friend, not only to him, but to those around you. He knows that you're a betrayer at heart. He knows that you desire your own comfort and and your own greed and your own lust and all of it. He knows that about you, and yet he loves you anyway, and he lays his life down for you, and he calls you to put your trust in him because he is a faithful friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. But there's another hymn that I want to close with reading. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. But he, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. That's our hope. To wrestle with your heart, but know that you have a faithful friend in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him, rest in him, run to him. He loves you. He died for you. Let's pray.